Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, we are here for AI Rewind, our second annual walk through the top trends and developments in machine learning and AI. And this time I am with Amir Zamir. Amir is an assistant professor of computer science at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology or EPFL. In fact, Amir at this current moment uh, for another three days is a postdoc at affiliated with Stanford and UC Berkeley where uh, he was when we first spoke with him. Uh, back in July of 2018. Amir, welcome back to the Twomo AI podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to dig into this conversation about uh, what's new, your take on 2019 from a computer vision perspective. Uh, and so to kind of get us started with that, why don't we just take broad brushstrokes? What, you know, what's your take on 2019? Thanks for having me. It was another exciting year, in my opinion, for fields um, within AI and um, including computer vision. You know, conflict conferences are expanding, so there's more talent coming in, more energy. I think CVPR 2018 was 6,000 roughly. The number of attendees in 2019 was about 10,000. So we'll see, and that was six months ago roughly. So we'll see how it's going to be in 2020, but that expansion in size how does that growth rate compare to uh, NeurIPS, which is the one that gets a lot of headlines? Right. NeurIPS was, uh, I, I came back from NeurIPS like roughly uh, two weeks ago. I believe it was 13,000. Uh, but again, they are like six months apart. So, um, you know, we will see how CVPR will be. But I think roughly the same size, maybe NeurIPS somewhat bigger because it generally includes many different areas, not just vision, not mm -hmm. just uh, NLP and so on. Many vision people are there, myself included. Um, but yeah, but they are huge conferences, big enough that you won't see your friends anymore. Um, so <laughs> are, and are the big. paper submissions at CVPR growing as quickly as NeurIPS? Yes. yes, yeah. I don't know the exact this year. Uh, though I'm an area chair, so I should know this number. But uh, <laughs> but all I know, all I know, uh, what I'm what I'm sure about, and it, is that there there was a really um, sharp expansion, and you know to some extent that presents a problem for us academics because we have to find reviewers for this load of like papers and so on. Uh, but that's fine. That's a good problem to have. Um, uh, the overall outcome is positive, albeit with some variances. Um, and, um, you know, the, the growth was in a way disproportional because now for the past like four or five years, there was a huge um, interest. And so we have a lot more like young talent in the field for the same reason they're young and new. So they're, we don't have as many seasoned reviewers to, to evaluate the papers for us. So to some extent, the review quality has a little bit of variance in it in, compared to a few years ago. But again, like I said, that's a good problem to have because the field is just generating more results. So a little bit of variance is, in my opinion, acceptable. So the field is growing dramatically mm -hmm. as are other areas in ML and AI. What else is happening in vision? Right, in terms more technically, I think, um, you know, we see uh, a few trends that they are not too exclusive to 2019, but I think 
Some of them are like maturing up in 2019. One meta trend that I see for sure is that we see a lot of mixes of areas like vision plus something else like vision plus graphics. I think a, a nominal example of that are, are all these like image synthesis pipelines, either GAN based and, and whatnot. But the pipelines that essentially generate an image, that's in a way it's a graphics problem because graphic is about like generating something good looking that you put under your screen, like rendering things. And vision was the inverse of the problem. You already have an image and you want to understand it. But um, these two areas got blended together. And I think um, uh, the first time in vision that I saw a reasonably working example was the paper Pix to Pix a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And after that, it became really popular and cycle again and so on. Those other papers actually came primarily from the vision community. And of course, the graphics community worked a lot on it too. So, um, so mixes of areas, vision plus graphics, I guess we'll discuss it partially when we get into more details. Um, vision plus robotics is expanding. I think it's one of the areas to watch for sure. Vision plus like adversarial robustness literature. I think that's something that uh, we, not many of us saw it coming, uh, but in a way it actually makes sense um, that how the algorithms that uh, basically there was a line of research going forward and making machine learning systems more robust. And that there are several examples were like posing concerns to people. It turns out that, you know, if you have more robust algorithms for processing visual data, they are more useful toward uh, just processing non-adversarial literature and non-adversarial um, content as well. Like if you have an image synthesis pipeline, um, it works better if it was robustified, even though they, even if you don't mess with the input anymore. Right. Uh, we can discuss in more detail as we go forward. But I think generally the, the trend of mixing different areas with vision is increasingly popular. And I think there's actually a healthy reason to this. Um, I think it's a, a realization of the fact that vision is a service to some downstream goal. It's a very powerful skill. But we don't usually observe the world for the purpose of just absorbing, uh, uh, like just understanding what's going on. We usually have an intent in mind. Like we understand the world with, you know, when I when I get up in the morning, uh, when I open my eyes, I intend to get out of bed safely and navigate myself out of the bedroom. So the vision is a very practical skill. And so we cannot really make that independent, the research that we do on vision of these downstream skills. So vision plus X is, uh, to me, I see that as realization of that fact, especially in the context of robotics. The reason we mix vision and robotics together is that our robots need to have a complex understanding of the world acquired through the cameras. So whatever the vision pipeline outputs, it should be in a way curated uh, to best support the downstream goal of a robot. I particularly don't care, for instance, if I have a robot in my home and it can detect all the objects and do all sort of like complex things. I don't really care how the vision pipeline works if the downstream goal of a robot, whatever it is, make the bed or do laundry or whatever that is. If that works just fine, the vision can be as simple as it wants to be. And so uh, it is really an end-to-end intertwined pipeline. And I'm I'm actually happy to see that these areas are mixing together because we can now 
do a more um, uh, meditated design in our research and do vision in a way that it's more useful to our deep downstream goals. There are some caveats to this story. For instance, art. When I observe a painting, I'm watching it, I'm looking at it, but I'm appreciating it. I don't necessarily intend to do something with it. But um, generally speaking, vision is a very practical skill and makes of areas, in, in my opinion, is, uh, is a realization of that. Is there also an implication that vision has reached a, a level of maturity or meaning the core vision tasks have reached a level of maturity or performance that we can now even consider moving on to real world uh, types of things and incorporating in these other areas like we've you know, we've solved enough of core vision to, you know, then mix it with these other fields. Um, yes and no. I, I would really hesitate. I would be really hesitant to say that we have solved enough core vision problems or we have solved them like fine. I actually think, let's say the the, the simplest example, probably the longest um, running problem in vision is, uh, let's say, object detection. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not at a point that we can say that we can, with a high confidence, we can detect an object under varying lighting conditions in different contexts and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but at the same time, a huge amount of progress has been made. Uh, whether there's a way to make them useful, I think the answer is yes. And that's why many uh, people that are not vision experts are actually using vision pipelines. And we see APIs as well. Um, so on, on Microsoft or Google, there are APIs where you can um, do somewhat niche problems, but they're sufficiently reliable, something like face detection. Um, so the fact that there, we have APIs that non-experts can, can use at the command line level, that basically means, yes, a certain level of maturity has, has been reached, but uh, that does not mean that we can solve the problems now that seemingly are simple. Uh, because we have huge problems in that, like specifically 3D, like 3D perception, we have a lot of sensors for it, and these sensors are expensive, such as LiDAR and so on and so forth. Um, but understanding the 3D con the content of an image in terms of 3D is far from like perfection. So there's a lot more work to do. Uh, we've got the field growing in size. We've got this mix of areas being explored. Any other general trends that you're seeing in vision? No, I think we will, uh, we'll, when we get into details of discussing um, some more technical developments, we'll, uh, we'll discuss that. But I think, I think in general, we see less and less fixed pattern recognition problems, um, like I said, object detection or segmentation and so on. That's going forward too, and that's going forward to strong. We see progress, but the attention and energy from what I see is like shifting towards these like new horizons, new horizons that are opening up right now. And I think there's like generally um, also interest in unsupervised or self-supervised learning has been growing um, and it continued to grow. And I think there was some um, good progress in the past year, but that's not something that I anticipate being solved anywhere in the near future. So I think I'll con we'll continue to see that as a, as a um, significant area of research. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you're going to bring that particular topic up in a little bit more detail. Sure. And let's transition to some of the specific 
areas that you've identified to dig in deeper. When we asked you to mm-hmm. identify, you know, just a, a few papers that you thought were, you know, represented the kind of progress that we've made in, in vision as a broad field in 2019, you found that particularly mm-hmm. difficult to do. Can you talk a little bit about why and the, the areas that you've identified to discuss with us? Right. Yeah, there are a number of areas that I think it's, it's worth discussion. Um, like I said, like when you have a conference with 10,000 people, and that's just CVPR, we have ICCV and ECCV as well, at least as like top tier vision conferences. I mean, you can imagine that there's a lot of research going on, thousands of papers coming out. So it's, uh, um, it's hard to just pick out one or two or five uh, papers, uh, because there's just more good work in those numbers and a handful of papers. But I think in terms of, um, we can we can summarize the trends. One trend that I specifically see and I expect to grow is uh, vision for robotics. Um, so general interest in robotics is growing, um, especially in what usually people refer to as like robot learning these days, like reinforcement learning platforms or generally mix of learning-based robotics with the classic robotics. And uh, vision is part of this story. Like a robot is a large, like intertwined, like framework, and it involves like multiple aspects, like sensory hardware, perception, planning, control, and so on. And one common question is like, what makes vision vision and like robotics robotics? Then um, these days, especially with the rise of like robot learning, where like one of the frequent claims is learning directly from raw pixels. Right. So one question is like why we need like a specific vision algorithms at all if all we can do is like learning directly from pixels. Um, so first, like I, I draw the line between vision and let's say control, uh, uh, acknowledging that this sort of intertwined pipeline and uh, clearly end to end. Sensory observation comes in, goes through vision, goes through planning, goes through control, goes through hardware, and the robot in the end does something. So it's an end-to-end pipeline, clearly. But um, to me, as a vision researcher, uh, what makes a vision research is um, a robot has some sensory hardware, like a camera, and these sensors observe something and have some output. Uh, when we the algorithm that just processes this output and extracts some useful abstractions out of those high-dimensional sensory data, that's the perception problem. So if they if the processing pipeline that black box sits closer to the sensors, it's more about understanding the world because those sensors are sensing the world. So uh, the prior the type of priors that those black boxes use are about like let's say the world is three D, or there is some uh, dynamics in the world. There is like motion smoothness and so on. So. Uh, perception uses these priors to to tame these high-dimensional signal and then hands that over to the rest of the pipeline, let's say planning and so on. So the closer to the end we get, um, um, then comes the problem of control. Like having these abstractions and having planned something, you want to issue an action that the robotic hardware executes for you. So to me, Vision researchers are in the beginning of this end-to-end pipeline. They are more concerned about the world. They use the priors about the world and turn that into processing pipelines. And robotic researchers 
get these more abstractions and turn are closer to the agent. They understand the hardware, the robot better. So they control the robot so that they execute something that in a way that after doing multiple of these iterations, um, the outcome is achieved. So like I said, this is immediately brings these multiple fields together, uh, vision plus robotics, and it calls for us vision researchers to develop this uh, vision box in a way that it can support the rest of the pipeline the best. It's not uh, it's not an open loop system. It's not like we receive a sensory uh, observation like images and produce something, an object, for instance, object detection, and then we just say we don't care about what's going on after that. It is really important what comes after that. For instance, um, uncertainty estimation. It's really important for control theory people. Um, so it makes sense that as vision researchers, we become aware of that and provide some some form of uncertainty estimation that is tied with our with our detection and and so on and so forth. So I think there are a number of um, clear developments in the field acknowledging this uh, vision for robotics type of research. Uh, by the way, in general, also the robotics uh, applications can be categorized very coarsely into manipulation and navigation. Um, navigation is, uh, the name says it, like where you are in a particular location and you want to go somewhere else. But that process involves uh, repositioning of the agent or all the changes the, the agent makes it's in itself. It moves and, and so on and so forth. It could be to find an object, let's say, in a, in a house, like find my keys. Mm-hmm. Or it could be given a coordinate to, to travel to that location. But it's all about like a robot goes somewhere. But it doesn't make an active change in the world. Uh, manipulation is the the other side of the story. Like if you want to open a box, you're making a change in something that is outside you as an agent. You're opening a box. So that's manipulation. So examples that I have in mind, and I think Vision Community in 2019 focused on, uh, are primarily in navigation. You, you drew a distinction early on in this between, and I want to get the this distinction I don't think I'm going to get this distinction correct, so so please correct me. But it was something along the lines of you know vision versus learning from pixels, right? Uh, well, vision is learning from pixels, right? Right. Um, That's the- I see. So I understand. So yeah. So there's um, there's actually tabula rasa learning. It's a it's a common word. It's not actually new. It's called like it's I think it's Latin. It means like clean a slate. Mm-hmm. So a system that let's say a robot that does tabula rasa learning uh, in terms of vision, what it does is that okay, I have the sensory output just raw pixels and I'm going to learn directly from raw pixels, let's say for instance using a model free reinforcement learning policy. And then um, you define your goal in terms of some reward function that like rewards you when you do something right and penalizes you when you don't do that right. And then you hope that by just direct interaction with the world, many, many, many data points, you the system will learn how to how to do the job right. And that's generally what we see in, in the reinforcement learning literature. Um, uh, especially like in model theory reinforcement learning. But there the, the distinction is that learning directly from raw pixels it basically means the state of the world is are these like raw pixels um and and by the way i'm generalizing a lot here to to get the uh get the general concept right sure um 
what vision is, is about when we are processing these raw pixels, instead of just using them raw, viewing them as like a 2D matrix that is coming from the camera, so that's what we know. Vision is about like having some priors about the world, and instead of using this signal raw, uh, we use those priors to extract some abstractions that are easier to understand. They're more interpretable, they're more efficient, and so on. So an example, like I said, is the, the fact that the world is 3D. So when you look at an image, it's a projection, 2D projection of a 3D world onto a 2D uh, uh, plane. So it basically loses the 3D information. So if a robot is trying to make use of this 2D projection, um, it has to somehow recover that information. So either we hope that by these like millions and millions and millions of interaction, this robot actually understands 3D reconstruction to some extent at least to be able to solve the problem because we know that some of these problems, especially in navigation, they need 3D perception. Like you need to know how far the obstacle is to be able to avoid it. So there's no like escape from that problem, at least at the course level. So either the hope is that by not providing these priors directly and, and learning directly from, from pixels, the, the system by many millions of interactions, it learns that. Or some people like vision researchers, they use these priors about the world, they extract these abstractions out of the, um, out of the raw pixels, and that's what the rest of the system, for instance, their enforcement learn policy uses. So, so you can you can view basically vision as identifying these like facts of the world, the fact that the world is 3D, mm -hmm. the fact that there's like motion and smoothness, turn them into processing pipelines. So when the raw image comes in, it first goes through these abstractions, and then those abstractions are what the rest of the system, like the robotic system, sees. So they're more interpretable, they're they're easier to tame, and you don't have to like redo this process. Um, every time that you turn a robot on during the, the learning uh, during the learning um, phase, because mm -hmm. these are just facts about the world that are generally true. It doesn't matter whether you're navigating or you're manipulating or you're finding an object or you're just going GPS coordinate. You need you need some understanding of of about three D from the world. So it makes sense to to turn that into more like a standalone problem yeah. where vision people solve and then um, then plug that into the bigger pipeline. Now, when I talk to folks that are coming from the the opposite direction or the other direction, uh, mm -hmm. the the pixel based learning and reinforcement learning, uh, one of the things that you know they say is hot this year is model based reinforcement learning. For example, um, where they're trying to learn a higher level model in the process of learning from the pixels to do some of the things that you're describing. And I guess the, you know, the question that I'm asking is, you know, does this mean that vision and, and the, the pixel based approaches are converging or uh, is it saying something else? So those models in the <laughs> model based RL, are they the same kind of, you know, abstractions that you're describing uh, right. that are core to vision? Right. I mean, model-based RL or generally model-based everything, is a, uh, it's too general to the point that it can include anything and everything. <laughs> so, for instance, model-based, yeah, you can have a model based on the 3D of the world, and right, that would right. become model-based something. So, um, they, this doesn't necessarily mean there is a completely orthogonal 
uh, approach to solving this problem that is going to um, replace vision or anything. Generally, when you have a model, you're encoding some priors. Either you're learning these priors mm-hmm. um, or you're encoding them into the system. And like I said, vision is more or less about that, too. We define some abstractions that we believe are generally true about the world, and we focus on solving those. Up until a few years ago, we were doing it completely independently of who uses the output, like a robot. But now, like I said, with these areas being mixed, we are developing them in a more end-to-end manner uh, with the awareness that we need to develop them in a way that they're best useful to the rest of the pipeline. Uh, but yeah, in the end, it's all uh, all the model. And they're like people call uh, different things a model. There's like dynamics model, which is about like, prediction of the um, um, outcome of a certain action. So that helps with like efficiency and so on. But for generally being able to solve this problem, um, you need to have a model and we are all in the business of developing that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so not enough information there. It it really depends on the specific thing that we're talking about. It's a very correct trend and I, and I like it, but yeah, um, the devil is in the details. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. So what are some of the specific papers that kind of exemplify this trend for you? Um, yeah, so um, for, for Vision for Robotics, like I said, uh, the Vision community primarily focused on the navigation. Um, um, there are good reasons for that, again. Um, I think it, one, one of the most important things that are probably enlightening here is to look at the data, like where we get the data for, for being able to solve, develop a vision uh, model for an agent that is active in the world, like a robot that does navigation. Mm-hmm. So it's a big question. It's a very different from, say, an offline data set that sits in the hard drive of a computer, like an image net. You take a picture once and that's it. Uh, you annotate it. You have no control over this pixel any longer. You cannot say, like, let me move a little bit in this image. Like, let me look at the same object from left or right and so on. So this pixel is like pre-recorded and is offline, basically. Now, by definition, active agent has some degree of freedom. So it can it can do something. It can move around, for instance, if it's a navigation agent. So there's a gap between like static and offline uh, data sets and the type of data that developing vision for robotics involves. We basically need to have some online pipeline for generating data. And that's usually why people use simulators. Um, Again, till a couple of years ago, the simulators were primarily based on uh, synthetic data. Uh, these are synthetic data, meaning that a designer would sit down and, and model, let's say, an apartment for you by putting together some CAD models of chairs and tables and so on. And there would be a computer graphics pipeline that renders that into pixels for you. And, and we would use that as a source of data. And that would solve the problem of being active because, of course, you can just shift a little bit in this scene and re-render it. Um, so it would give the uh, possibility of uh, a degree of freedom um, to, to the agent that is using the data. But the main problem was that the data was not then from the real world. So there would be no uh, guarantee that this would generalize. And generally speaking, since computer graphics is not completely solved yet, so the, the type of pixels that we get that the, as a result of this are not fully photorealistic. And even if they were fully photorealistic, the underlying semantics are coming from a designer. And the designers have biases too. Um, so if you look at the, let's say, some of these models that existed in um, such data sets like SunCG and, and so on, 
Um, it's the moment you look at an image, it's immediately clear that they are coming from a simulator. They're not from the real world. And what gives it out is not just the fact that the pixels are not like photorealistic, it's the fact that these models are usually too clean. No designer would sit down and design, say, a very messy bedroom and, and so on and so forth. So there was a there was a photorealism gap, but there was a bigger actually semantic gap. So since a couple of years ago, what changed, and I think it, in my opinion was actually a big change in the community, was that data sets came out that they're based on scans of real world buildings. And then CPR 16, we had one paper called Building Parser. It was, I think, the, I believe the first time that multiple large buildings were scanned using like commercial um, uh, scanning pipelines in full in 3D. So you would have a mesh of one building. I remember at that time we had, I think, six buildings of, of a Stanford scan. So you could load the mesh in your computer and look at it. And it's the entire building is at your disposal. So that later became a underlying model for many simulators. Um, and now the simulators, instead of using the, the designer to de develop things or design things for you, now there's actually a real building that is serving as the underlying data. Um, and uh, so multiple data sets came out of that. One of them is called like Stanford 2D 3DS, uh, Matterport 3D, and... and um, uh, Facebook replica and so on. That was actually the last one in this uh, uh, time-wise. Um, in Gibson in 2019, there was a, uh, 2018 in CPR, we had the paper in Gibson that had brought that to really large scale. There was about 600 buildings that they were scanned. Um, and now there's like 600 buildings that can serve as um, underlying data for robots. So a robot can virtually visit 600 buildings interact with it in uh, as far as navigation is involved, of course, and and learn from it. And 600 is a lot. Um, if you um, go to a new building every week and visit all corners of it, because these are scanners like scan everything. If you go to a building, a, a new building every week, it takes 10 years to get through 600 buildings. So there's a lot of visual data, certainly more than what like humans probably observe uh, by the end of uh, age two. That's where like vision is sufficiently uh, developed. So that wasn't an excuse anymore, essentially lack of data. Given the, the constraint that you mentioned mm -hmm. on, you know, how long it takes to scan these buildings, was the, the data crowdsourced? Yes, to, to some extent. We, we spoke with, uh, we had like cameraman, some of them, we would send them to actually scan uh, buildings for us. Some of them would have a scans already, so we would acquire it from them. Uh, but yeah, we didn't actually scan them. It was like peoples that would scan them for different reasons. Um, then we would acquire them. Um, and there's actually, since the scanning pipelines, 3D scanning pipelines are now sufficiently uh, mature, there is actually a support chain for them, uh, primarily coming from uh, real estate market. Um, you know, most of the, I'm not actually sure if it's most of the houses, but a good percentage of the houses, if you want to, if you want to sell them well, you have to scan them in 3D so you can put up a website for them. Mm -hmm. So the buyer can navigate in it before they actually come see it and so on. So that's actually a good resource of data for us. Um, and that actually created a supply chain of cameramen that you can uh, probably any city, at least in the United States and, and Canada, you can hire a cameraman that already has a camera and they can go scan and then uh, within a few hours they can send the model. So we, we made use of that. 
And that's the way we have uh, 600 buildings now. And then that served for, uh, uh, I would say, a large amount of development in the community around around the Gibson platform um, and Gibson dataset. Uh, Facebook, after that, they picked it up and they um, they developed something called Habitat Platform, uh, which one of the data, the, the main source of data that they use uh, as of now is still Gibson, these 600 buildings. And they turned that into easy to use framework that, you know, within probably like half an hour of cloning the GitHub, you have some data pipeline. Uh, at your disposal that you can have these virtual agents learn in them in a way that the visual signal that they see is sufficiently close to the real world. That doesn't mean that it's perfect, but it's it's close enough to the point that that's a proxy for making progress for handling the real world. This Habitat competition, this is a, a benchmark that Facebook is proposing for agents that are navigating spaces. Can Can we talk about what the kind of how do they quantify performance in this environment? Right. Yeah. Um, it's built, uh, Facebook has a team of um, software engineers and researchers that um, developed the Habitat platform. Like I said, to a large extent, it was um, developed on top of Gibson and a few other works that exist in the community, like I said, in the past, like Minos and, and so on. Um, so the way it works in general is that um, the tasks are specific, like point nav or point navigation. Um, the agent is dropped in a new building, completely unseen, um, and it's provided at the random location in a, in a new building, and it's provided with a coordinate to go to. So the agent could be randomly spawned in a bedroom, and the coordinate that it's provided as the goal location is somewhere in the living room. And all it sees is a stream of RGB or RGBD data. And it has to now plan its way around the obstacles and safely navigate itself to that particular location, which could be like tens of meters away. So it's a hard problem to solve, mm -hmm. especially that this is a new building. It's not like you could uh, spend time, scan this building, something like a slam pipeline, and then um, run ASTAR and something like that to to plan, like post-plan a trajectory. It's just like a, like imagine as a human when you go to, your friend's house when they just bought a house, so you have never been there. And once you enter the living room and you want to use the bathroom, you can probably think about, okay, the bathroom would be probably I need to be looking for some hallways or doors and maybe with a little bit of search, uh, you would find your way to the bathroom. But you would not be just randomly wandering around this building for hours and hours till maybe by chance you would find the bathroom. Right. So. <laughs> So these agents, actually, um, the, the task is something similar to that. Completely unseen building spawned in a random location and provided with a target coordinate, just travel to it. So that was the first competition of Habitat in 2019. And there were actually um, a lot of entries. I don't know the exact number, but they were enough to actually make a good competition. There were two tracks, uh, and they were not about the task, but they were about the type of data. So if the agent, all it sees is RGB, that would be akin to having just an RGB camera on, on a real robot. That would be RGB only track. And there was another track which was RGBD that would be like having a 3D sensor to like connect. And uh, we entered that challenge too. And, and we were the um, winner of the um, RGB track. Um, 
Um, and the habitat challenge continues every, um, from what I know, it's going to continue in 2020 and, um, well, hopefully in the future as well, um, to serve as a benchmark and, and to track the progress in the field. But this was a good representation of, um, how like something from just Gibson was introduced in 2019 and habitat was developed after that. And now we are at a point that we have a challenge where like tens of teams enter. And there is a good amount of energy in the community that is spent in this area. Um, so it's, uh, to me, it's actually a very healthy progress uh, towards uh, Vision Plus robotics in this context. And this, like I said, the robots are limited to navigation now. And the reason for it is that our data platforms right now can support only navigation, not manipulation. Um, technically speaking, it's hard to scan a building and now go make a change in it and be able to render it. These buildings are scanned statically. Um, so we don't have a good like support pipeline yet as of now for, for capturing uh, both dynamic content and interactive content. There's work going in this direction in the community too, but I, I, I think it's, uh, I, I would summarize them to be still in, in a scouting stage when they're, they're, they're in fancy. So we'll see how that plays out in a few years. But navigation is something that, you know, it's a reasonably stable. We have good data platform um, for it. And we can look at the uh, output. And, and to be honest, like I was personally impressed by the, uh, the performance of the, the winning teams in both tracks. It, it's, it's actually a hard problem to drop an agent in an unseen building and give it a goal that is like tens of meters away uh, navigating the path is hard because you need to identify a lot of things. You need to know, for instance, where the doorway is to get yourself out of the room. And the moment you're out of the room, you don't want to hit like the walls or many obstacles on the way. And then maybe the target is behind, let's say, uh, a chair and so on. So there's a lot of like a fine-grained planning that goes into successfully doing that. But the success rates are actually higher than what I expected. So Hopefully in the next year, we'll see this becoming more mature. And the task, of course, need to be more realistic. Mm -hmm. um, point navigation is, is probably the simplest one. Uh, we need to be able to navigate towards, uh, like semantic, move towards semantic navigation. Let's say if you task an agent with finding a key, the key doesn't have a specific yeah. coordinate. It can be anywhere, but it's not in arbitrary locations too. Are there any other uh, kind of highlights uh, in the vision for robotics yeah, feel that you want to touch on before we move on. No, uh, well, I think I think this was Habitat was a, uh, and and Gibson and so on were actually a good uh, representative of the progress uh, in terms of the discussion that we had earlier. Is uh, like if you can learn everything from raw pixels, what would be the need for like vision? Uh, uh, um, there were actually multiple papers that came out in this area that they had focused the studies on why actually it is critical to have vision pipelines when you're trying to do robotic tasks. Uh, one of them was uh, a paper that we did. Um, and we published in um, last year, I believe, in December 2019 on Archive. It's called Mid-Level Vision Representations, Improved Generalization and Sample Efficiency of Vision Motor Policies, and an update that we published in, in CORAL uh, in November that's basically uh, mid-level vision for, uh, for navigation. And there was also another paper that had a very similar flavor concurrently came out that uh, was actually published in um, 
I don't remember actually, I believe in an, an robotics journal, and the title is actually Does Computer Vision Matter for Action? Which is a very direct statement of, of the question. And the, the conclusion to both of these is that yes, it's really important and critical to have vision pipelines. And the, and the reason is, again, those priors. If you don't supply your, um, your robotic pipeline with these priors about the world, like the world is 3D, there are objects and there's permanence and so on and so forth. Yes, there's a way that they can learn it, but it will take a tremendous amount of data, like millions and millions of interactions to recover those facts. So either we, we don't provide those priors and we directly use raw pixels, and, but the consequence of that is being inefficiency. As we know, let's say uh, tabular RL is very inefficient. Um, that's why most of the time it's focused in simulators because you cannot do as much interaction with the real world or it will take years. Or we make ourselves prone to not generalization. Uh, you could solve the problem for a limited space for where you did learning. Uh, that's when the algorithms find a shortcut. Uh, but then the moment you go to a new building, because the same shortcuts that they used for learning, there was based on bias of data, so they wouldn't generalize. So both of these papers, and, and they strongly showed that supplying these priors, which is the job of computer vision, uh, significantly improves efficiency, so you can learn faster with less data, and also it improves generalization. So what you learn in one building, it won't be specific to that one building anymore. So I think this was actually a very strong uh, conclusion and, and in a way um, response to, to, uh, to demand for a study that it is really important for robotic pipelines to, to use like vision algorithms and priors. So I think those that should basically summarize are, uh, at least in my opinion, the important progress in vision for robotics in the past year. The next area you had in mind was 3D vision, which uh, we've actually talked quite a bit about um, mm -hmm. in the robotics context. Yes, exactly. So uh, I think that the motivation is clear. The, the world is um, especially 3D. But when we look at an image, it, we are looking at actually a 2D projection of it. Um, so basically that calls for, um, the problem of recovering the 3d structure as a human, you understand the world in 3d just because the retina, uh, in our eyes receives a 2d projection. That doesn't mean we are unable to recover that underlying 3d, but we do that through multiple, uh, uh, mechanisms such as a stereo. We have eyes. So stereo is a solution to recovering 3d, but even when you cover one of your eyes, you can still see the world in 3D, basically it means some recognition or learning based is, is in process. So we need, so recovering this 3D structure from a 2D projection, such as an image, is, uh, um, is a strong problem uh, in, in vision community, especially in the past year, I think I see a rise. Uh, I think that was um, a, demonstrated by the fact that the, uh, paper award nominations in both CVPR and ICCV include actually papers in 3D. And also, I think the problem has actually another angle too in, in 3D vision. Now, we have 3D sensors because 3D is important. Uh, we need processing pipelines for, for this 3D data. So this is different from the first problem that I mentioned. Um, image is 2D, you want to recover 3D. And then you'll do something with that recovered 3D. Sometimes we have the 3D from a sensor, like a LiDAR or Kinect and so on. But the processing pipeline that we use for images do not directly 
work on on 3D data. Um, they either work or they are very inefficient or they just don't produce as much good results. So um, that's actually the second category in 3D vision, having pipelines for processing 3D data. Um, both of them, I believe, they expanded notably in 2019, and I, and I see a rising trend over there, so I expect to see more and more of it in, in the years to come. I, I think they're like, uh, uh, in the first, like, we can actually maybe talk about uh, um, a specific example in each of these categories. Does that sound good to you? Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think in terms of like, uh, generally, when we talk about the first um, category of problems, recovering 3D from a 2D image, um, first question is that where we get the data. Uh, you have to have an image and have the underlying 3D data if you want to do it in a um, su fully supervised learning manner to be able to learn, let's say, a neural network that receives an image and it spits out the 3D. So where we get the data. So 3D sensors are... Uh, are there, but they're less common than RGB. So we have a lot more RGB content than RGB plus 3D out there. Mm -hmm. um, a workaround that is common uh, now is that uh, people get RGB data, let's say a YouTube video uh, or multi-view uh, cameras, and then recover 3D using like classic methods like a structure for motion and slam and so on. And then once that is recovered using classic methods, they use the recovered 3D as a um, super, uh, supervision for doing RGB to 3D from like individual frames, like monocular 3D. Okay. Um, that has been working uh, for a few years and has been shown like effective uh, to a reasonable extent. Uh, one thing that makes that hard is dynamic content because like, those classic 3D reconstruction methods uh, usually work based on point correspondences. And when you have moving objects in the scene, it's, it becomes basically an ill-posed problem is that, is it the 3D of the scene that is governing this motion or is actually there's like, let's say a human that is moving in the scene and so on. So, and humans are actually specifically an important part because humans are a very important object in the world in general. Right. Um, so there's one paper that I personally found like pretty uh, cute in past year. It was learning the depth of moving people by uh, watching frozen people. So it was it had a very interesting like workaround. There was the mannequin challenge um, that became popular. Um, if you remember, it was about like people just standing stationary yeah, for yeah. a period of time, and some somebody would film them. So that is actually interesting because they did a lot of data collection for us implicitly. So people just stood the stationary and somebody walked between them. So we actually had, they collected a snapshot of the world where it was frozen and people were specifically there because it was mannequin challenge. So there was a moving camera, but no dynamic content, but Whereas the rest of the times, it's really hard, if you think about it, to find people when they are stationary and then they don't move unless they are sleeping. When somebody is awake, there's usually some at least micro motion. So mannequin challenge was great. that turned into a source of data that this paper used. So now they, they apply um, the methods that would not probably normally work for dynamic content and people and the mannequin challenge data and, and use that as supervision for now they can do depth of moving people, whereas they actually learned it on, on frozen people. So they kind of tricked the system 
um, by by learning from frozen people. But when you when you do it frame by frame, then it it basically doesn't know that the person is moving. So that that was an interesting. Uh, so it was an interesting paper, and I think it was uh, a representation of the fact that still when we are doing um, 3D vision, uh, data is a big problem there. And this paper actually addressed the data by uh, by this nice, interesting challenge that happened past year. Yeah, it's a fairly... Uh, uh... It, it's quite creative, but it also exactly. begs the question, you know, for... Uh, you know, where will we get the data sets required to generalize this kind of approach, right? <laughs> yeah, unless there is a mannequin talent for for dogs for everything. and cars. Exactly. And ex- yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, there are aspects of the world that are static. Um, like I said, for instance, like in Gibson data, uh, these are human, like primarily these are like uh, residential places and and people just go and scan them. And by default, uh, there's little motion unless there's a human in the scene. So humans very often are one of the main sources of like motion. And there's some other forms of like motion too. Like if there's a fan on the ceiling that is like rotating, there's no human there, but mm-hmm. it's there's motion there. So, but they're less common. So, and also like I said, humans are one of the most important objects in the world. So. It makes sense to actually have processing pipelines that uh, that solve them. And then we'll take it from there. Yes, uh, I guess we need to be either more creative or we can hope for algorithms that come out and uh, handle the dynamic create, uh, contents better to be able to generalize it to to um, the more general setting. Yeah, and, and specific to this model is the idea that uh, the, the model that's created with this technique could be kind of pulled out and used in a transfer learning kind of fashion in other pipelines or... Uh, that you would incorporate this process into other pipelines and and or, or none of the above is it just more of a proof of concept well i think the transfer in a way that happened was transferred from um, frozen people to moving people so the data was purely from mannequin challenge in which nobody's moving right by mm-hmm. by the definition of mannequin challenge but once you learn from there, that doesn't mean that when you're using the learn uh, the learn model, it has to be applied on on frozen people too. So think about it this way: um, what they uh, let's say if you learn a frame by frame processing pipeline out of uh, the mannequin challenge, so it receives one image of a human um, and it can recover the 3D. Now. During the actual data uh, in the in the data set, the people are frozen. So five pe- five frames in a row, the person is frozen. So it's not moving, but it's a frame by frame process. Processing the frame the first frame is independent of the second frame and third frame. So at the test time, you can actually apply it on a video where people are moving, and it can just perfectly find recover the 3D because it basically bridges no connection between the first frame and second frame. So you can you can now apply that on moving people. Actually, they did show it in the paper that they learned on frozen people and they applied on, 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 on uh, moving people. And that's a consequence of the fact that, you know, whenever you do, say, single frame processes, you can, uh, the frames are independent. Uh, that's actually an old trick. You have, we have seen it before in many papers. And it goes from there. So 
Um, in the con so that's the type of transfer. I'm not aware of uh, any sort of like other transfer learning uh, being in play here. But if we have a pipeline that can recover the 3D uh, people reliably well, I think that itself is is a pretty important problem and worth uh, worth attention. So that was the on, uh, an example from recovering 3D from 2D images. Um, like I said, the other batch of problems in 3D is processing the data that is 3D, let's say an output of a LiDAR sensor or Kinect. Let's say to extract semantics out of it. You can do object detection given an image, or you can do object detection given a LiDAR scan. And you'd hope that if you have something like LiDAR, you would have more information than what an image gives you, so you should be able to do a better job. And what's that an example act- of the kind of semantics that you'd want to pull out? Object detection. Let's say if you have a scan of a building, uh, you want to be able to detect all the objects that are in there, just the, the same for the same reason that when you have an image of a building, um, you want to detect the objects that are in the view. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but again, there's a mismatch between the availability of data there. The 3D data is a lot less available than than 2D data. That's primarily because um, consumers are a source of 2D data, like YouTube or Flickr, or like we, with our cell phones, we all take like pictures. We don't want to scan things in 3D. Um, so that's uh, lack of 3D data, at least like less than 2D data is one thing there. The other aspect that I, I wanted to talk about uh, is that, like I said, efficiency is a big question there. When you go from 2D images to 3D, like processing a LiDAR scan, um, the, the grid is not 2D anymore, especially 3D. Um, so the complexity increases significantly. And the, the subsequent question is that, okay, how do you parameterize it? And, and, and what do you do? Like, do you voxelize this? Do you process it like a set where each point has some coordinates and so on? So there has been progress in general on this front to in, in terms of efficiency and accuracy of uh, extracting semantics given 3D data, whether it's LiDAR or, or Kinect and, and, and whatnot. There are multiple papers. Um, actually, there's, uh, I believe at Stanford, there's, a, there's a, um, a pipeline, it's called Minkowski Engine, that is focused on an efficient 3D processing. Um, there's PointNet2 that came a couple of years ago, but it has been like matured since then. Um, a few months ago in, in ICCV in Seoul, there was this paper on deep half voting for 3D object detection in point cloud. That's actually another representative. I believe it was one of the award nominations too. So 3D sensors typically give you something like a point cloud. And then you want to do various type of semantic extractions on top of that. And object detection is probably the most nominal example. You want to put a bounding box around the objects that you see. Um, and uh, so this paper actually had some pretty good results on that. And the idea in general was on an, an voting. So when you look at, let's say, the point cloud is, as the name says, is a cloud of 3D points. And each point can vote for what kind of object that it belongs to. Like all the points that belong to a chair, that can vote for for being a chair and for like some parameterized like representative points, like say a center of the chair. And um, this paper actually used this voting pipeline and voting, voting concept and reported actually good results in terms of um, 
object detection. Something similar to that actually happened I, uh, in in 2D um, uh, sector too. I believe it was called center net and something or something similar to that. That they're like pixels in an image, both for the center of the object that they belong to. So that's in a way it's different from uh, the, the 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 preceding. Um, uh, angle that was basically labeling each pixels on its own, like such as in segmentation and so on, or finding finding exact like it's it wouldn't be a voting pipeline. That's that's the distinction between them. So um, I think that was also just just to have a nominal example of papers that do three D processing for extracting semantics, and I and I see that um, to be again a rising movement to develop more efficient pipelines within the vision community for recovering 3D or processing 3D and, you know, doing more workarounds uh, for lack of data there. Let's move on to the next category. Another area that I, that I believe in 2019 continued to observe progress was self-supervised learning. In general, we can, I think, summarize that things are working sufficiently where for fixed mapping problems if you have enough data, meaning that if you have an image, you want to, like, uh, extract something out of it, let's say objects and so on. If you have enough data, it's a matter of probably um, designing your architecture and struggling with uh, with hyperparameters a little bit and training it for long enough, you'll get some sufficient results. Mm-hmm. The question that have been concerning a lot of vision researchers several since like several years ago after deep learning, probably immediately after deep learning wave came, was that what are we going to do if you don't have enough data? And that gave rise to uh, multiple research directions, um, self-supervised learning being one of them. And I think the general uh, the general question and the, the goal there is that you want to rely on less and less on human-labeled data. You have a lot of data, raw data uh, in hand, but just rely less and less on human-labeled data and use raw data to identify trends in there and then kickstart your uh, learning pipeline to the point that uh, the the reliance on, on human labels is just only for the last mile and perhaps exceptions. So self-supervised learning has been going forward for a number of years. Um, that you can actually look at the workshops within vision and machine learning community um, to, and you'll see that every year there's actually a popular workshop in that. Um, in ICML last year. In 2019, we also had this workshop on on self-supervised learning. Hopefully, we'll have it again in in ICML 2020. In CVPR 18, uh, we had the Beyond Supervised. So there's a lot of basically focus um, on this problem in the community, and a lot of good researchers are focused on it. Um, So it's not specific to 2019 as a trend, but in 2019, I think, uh, it was for the first time that we saw that uh, the ImageNet problem essentially being solved with less labels. Or uh, it was, to be more specific, it was the first time that without using labels, a self-supervised pipeline was able to achieve as uh, good results that a, 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 as a fully supervised pipeline would receive. And that was actually a good point. Um, I believe there were like two or three papers that reported that uh, success. Hmm. The one that I particularly liked was the, there's a paper based on contrastive predicting coding. 
Um, so this paper, the contrastive predictive coding, the, the title of the paper is Data Efficient Image Recognition with Contrastive Predictive Coding. Um, so the contrastive predictive coding is not a new idea. It has, has ex existed before. But I think they really rendered it into a, a mature pipeline to the point that it's stable now. And it can, as far as this ImageNet dataset is concerned, you can actually get good ImageNet classification results without having to use the ImageNet labels, which is, uh, which is actually interesting and a good proxy for, for progress here. The contrasted predicting coding is one of the ideas that have worked towards this purpose is actually not a complex concept. In general, you can, let's say, you, you learn the regularities in the visual world to be able to learn good features out of it. Let's say, if you start, if I show you the like top half of an image, you will have an idea of what the bottom half would be. Like if in the top half, if you see like a head of a dog, probably you would say in the bottom half, there would be the body of a dog. Mm -hmm. So now, when would you be able to make that prediction? You would be able to make that prediction when you know how the world looks like. You know that dogs are not just these like heads that are like floating in the air. Right. There's usually a body to support it. So, so the raw image, if you have a lot of them, is enough for, for learning that. So, so that's basically a, like in a very simplified way, the idea behind like predictive coding. Um, you show part of a data and you learn your system to predict the rest of the data. And this requires no labeling because the data is like raw and available to you. You just mask it during learning and you get the uh, neural network to predict the masked part. So that this turns out to be a, actually a good uh, way of learning features. Mm -hmm. And the paper that I mentioned actually uses this idea in a, in a more advanced way to not rely on human-defined labels. That's in contrast to, let's say, something like AlexNet that basically just started from images from the iteration uh, zero of learning uh, it would map pixels into human defined labels uh, human um, uh, human defined labels of course there was a thousand classes but actually like every single instance of an image was labeled by uh, by annotator so um, so that was actually there I think that uh, what we need to be aware of for the year to come is that, this was shown for ImageNet, and this does not mean that we can do this for uh, all problems in vision and under all settings. So the caveat essentially is that this is a specific setup. There's a certain architecture, there's a linear layer and so on. This doesn't mean that this will continue to happen regardless of these design choices. And uh, But still, we didn't have this even, even this prior to this year. So I think it's it, we can. there's something to celebrate here. And the more importantly, uh, even if it was architecture agnostic, this is about ImageNet. And ImageNet is not the world. It's a very niche part of the world. It's a very dog-biased part of the world because there are, like, many dog classes in there. And then, for instance, from other species and animals, there's, like, less of them. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is about the bias that the design of a, any data set involves. Um, the fact that we showed this on as a community on ImageNet that doesn't mean that we can show it for everything. So we can we can call it a success when for any image recognition problem, we would have a self-supervised learning pipeline in which we would not rely, have to rely on human labels too much and be able to solve that problem. Let's say if somebody does that for depth estimation or object segmentation and so on, then it would be a lot more convincing.
But that was definitely a progress for 2019 and self-supervised learning too. Now, we've seen uh, 2019 and and 2018 as well has brought um, self-supervised learning to the fore on the NLP, uh, within the realm of NLP in a big (laughs) way with models like BERT and Elmo (laughs) and others. Is there a relationship between the... You know, this being a focus area at vision in, in the vision space, do you think? Do you think that we're kind mm-hmm. of pulling from, you know, inspiration from, you know, one to the other? No, no, it's actually a great point. It's both ways. Um, like predictive coding, in a way, actually has similarities to the models that, that work well in, in, in NLP, too. So, um, like a language model in general is something similar to that. Like you give the beginning of of a sentence, whether as character or words, but you give it the beginning and you train the system to predict what comes next. And it can push it really, it's a, not just the next word that comes, but many words that, that come after that. Or you can turn it into like fill in the blank problem. So it's all about like masking part of the data and filling it in, whether it's the next part of the data or some like preceding part of data. Um, but the, the common gist here is that, uh, we use raw data to be able to, we define a problem that is primarily based on masking part of the data and get the system to learn to, to fill that gap. And that is just a good feature. And then what comes out of this like pipeline is a feature, whether it's learned on text, yeah, it becomes something like BERT. If it's learned on images, it becomes something like the, um, predictive coding pipeline that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And they become good features that are just sufficiently, at least as far as, let's say, for images, uh, image that was involved, sufficiently universal. So could you use those features to to read different things out of it, such as like ImageNet classification? So yeah, there are similarities, actually. And I, I, I see that going both ways. There are many people that, uh, that, uh, that work on both um, the self-supervised like models for both image and and um, text. And on the training side of things, are there any generalizations you can make around the, you know, the complexity of training training ImageNet? Uh, although it's been you know decreasing in the amount of time required, has historically taken a long mm-hmm. time. Does this method? Uh, take you know much more time, or you know perhaps mm-hmm. even less time. What's the relationship between? I the two? I honestly don't know that because even uh, all the details of some of these like language models were not released at least in the first uh, time that they were made public. Uh, well, I'm asking less about the language models than comparing than vision. Uh, yeah, on the vision side. I understand um, on the vision side. Well, these, these, what I can say in general is that not knowing how long it takes for the language, and I actually don't know how we can actually compare even the amount of data in terms of vision language um, to, to be able to um, quantify the amount of time that it takes because they, there's more data there too. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more asking about mm-hmm. training a traditional vision model against mm-hmm. ImageNet supervised versus training a self-supervised image model against ImageNet, are they, <laughs> you know, is there anything we can say about the amount of time it takes to train? Right. It really depends on the on the specific method that it, uh, that would be employed for self-supervised learning, but the general trend is that self-supervised it takes longer. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> no first surprise of all, there. Multi- there. <laughs> exactly. No surprise <laughs> there. There are multiple phases and it's 
learning a proxy problem, hoping that it would it would transfer well to some um, some downstream goal that we don't have enough data for it. So yeah, I think it's safe to say that in general it takes longer. Though you could basically have a really large supervised model that takes a tremendous amount of time. But mm -hmm. I think there's a way to actually engineering it down to the point that um, self-supervised would always take longer. Another category I think is worth mentioning, um, and it it's uh, it's interesting to me the connection between adversarial robustness um, research and and vision. So. Um, it's basically an interesting finding. So in general, the robustness issue is that, you know, you would have an image recognition pipeline, let's say object detection, and turns out that if you can make very small changes in the input, uh, something that humans even won't see, like adding a few pixels or making a change, like very tiny, tiny changes in the pixels, there's a way to actually mess with the uh, object detection pipeline, uh, whereas the humans wouldn't see that change at all. So that kind of made a, um, it raised a big question and it made a lot of people concerned. Also, it's it's besides like the concerns and safety and so on, uh, it was actually an interesting question intellectually that why is it that uh, image recognition pipeline that seemed to be working well, there's, a, there's such a big loophole that we can mess with the pixels in a very imperceptible way mm -hmm. um, that, that uh, changes the output such drastically. Um, so there has been progress in in the uh, in the community of adversarial robustness community um, towards like methods that just robustifies the neural networks with respect to these changes. Um, a lot of work came out of Alexander Matry's uh, group at MIT, and they showed actually good progress towards like high frequency. Uh, adversarial patterns, and they basically train, they augment the, the, the training of a system in a way that uh, the, the outcome is in there in respect to that kind of noises. And then therefore you would expect more robustness. And indeed it, the system does become more robust, at least with respect to that particular adversarial uh, pattern. Mm -hmm. Now, I think what was interesting, uh, in retrospect, it's common sense, but it it had to be shown that if you robustify a, a image recognition pipeline, you would expect it to have a better understanding of the world, and therefore it should actually work even better for applications that are not within the context of adversarial robustness. So let's say if you um, if you have a image recognition pipeline that with a little bit of changes in the pixels around the dog, it would just misclassify a dog for an ostrich. Mm -hmm. And it just basically means it didn't quite understand what a dog is. Um, so it was prone to these kind of mistakes. Now, if you have a robust system that it doesn't make that system anymore, it means it better understood what a dog is. So it better understood the manifold of real world images and what's possible in the real world and not. So there was this paper actually in NIRBS just, uh, just two weeks ago um, from Alexander Matry's group that basically showed that if you have a... Uh, robust image classifier, image classifier that is like trained with this robustness mechanism, you can use it to synthesize better looking images compared to the same exact classifier just without being trained with uh, uh, with adversarial robustness. The title of the paper, I believe, was image synthesis with a single robust classifier. And they basically showed that uh, side by side, if you look at 
synthesized image coming out of a neural network. You know, in image synthesis pipeline, we always use some sort of pre-trained neural network, uh, an image network, and whatnot. Uh, that's a requirement uh, uh, um, in the in the system. So for that uh, pre-trained neural network, if you use a robust classifier versus a non same exact data, same exact architecture. The robust classifier just renders much better looking uh, images for various kinds of synthesis problems like in-painting or transferring sketches to images or super resolution and so on. So this was an interesting uh, finding. It, Like I said, it makes sense because, of course, a more robust system, it understood, you would hope that it understood the uh, uh, the manifold of real-world images better. So therefore, it should be able to do better synthesis too. But we finally have a paper that, that actually showed that too, which I personally find interesting. And it's another example of the um, mix of different areas between vision and this time uh, adversarial robotics nest research. Mm -hmm. the, the generalization re result makes me think a little bit of the parallel to multitask learning where we've seen over the past, you know, relatively recently, I think past year or two, mm -hmm. a lot of work's been going into multitask learning that showed that uh, just the addition of another task in the training process helps the networks generalize and perform better. In a sense, often mm -hmm. in this uh, in the uh, adversarial uh, robustness research, the robustification of the network is another task, and so these are kind mm -hmm. of similar results or, or related potentially results. Right. To to some extent, that's true. Like, essentially, the robustness is as a result of augmenting the loss with the additional terms that you wouldn't normally have. And you can view as multitask learning uh, versus single task learning as augmenting the loss of a, of a single task framework with more losses, like more tasks mm -hmm. than they wouldn't mm -hmm. normally have. So there's a there's that like regularization effect that they um Though I have to say that in multitask learning, uh, that observation has been challenged quite few in quite few different settings. It really depends, for instance, what tasks that you learn together to be able to uh, to be able to actually see the benefits of multitask learning. Um, uh, ironically, actually, we published one paper on this area, which is exactly called "Which Tasks Should Be Learned Together in Multitask Learning," hmm. and that that. The, the the title says it all that there's a question there to ask like it's just being multitask is not necessarily better uh there's like multiple other parameters in play such as what tasks should be learned together and there's also like the uh an equal amount of research going into let's say even if you know what tasks that you want to learn together what the architecture should be how the sharing exactly should happen should it be like soft parameter sharing hard parameter sharing some sort of progressive sharing where you decide what parts of the parameters and layers should be shared and which parts should be dedicated to to networks, to, to different tasks. So um, to be able to get the benefits of multitask learning, uh, I personally believe that, that a lot more research has to be done. And the examples that we see are probably when we got lucky and they worked out. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean we completely understood the problem yet. So, you know, there you have, we've kind of gone through these four key areas mm -hmm. that you see us making some advances uh, in the vision field in 2019. And those are primarily from kind of the academic perspective. How are you seeing these trends play out in the real world? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think if by the real world you mean like who has used them or in terms of like commercials, um, mm -hmm. I think probably I see two areas. Um, image synthesis, like I said, it became, uh, it entered the new maturity level. Like we see apps that come out that actually use these kind of learning-based synthesis that was, I think, a child of the marriage between vision community and graphics community. And these apps that like transfer you from like young to old or uh, like smiley to not a smiling and so on and so forth. And then there's uh, uh, companies like NVIDIA. I know that they're active on that. And it had the consequences of, uh, you know, the photo fakery concerns like deep fakes and so on. That if things become so well, then how do you know when something is real and when it is not? But it's safe to say that that technology has been proven effective and has been adopted. Um, so that's one area mm -hmm. that I see. Um, it, it entered a maturity level that was uh, uh, commercialized and also used by ordinary people on their phones and so on. Um, another interesting area continues to be autonomous driving. Um, um, again, a, a, a car, an autonomous car is actually a robot. It's a it's a big robot. It has sensors, it has perception, it has planning, it has control, though it's a specific one. It's one for navigation designed to move on the roads that, you know, marked up and, and so on and so forth. So in a way, uh, um, it's an example of like robotics, Vision Plus robotics. And, and then again, I'm as com commenting on the perception aspect because there's a lot of things that go into getting something like autonomous driving um, car to work. Um, sure. uh, we saw progress, um, you know, Tesla continues to release new features like a smart summon that you can call the car to, to come to you, um, in a parking lot and the Waymo, I heard, um, during NERPS that they just released a, an app that works in Arizona, then it can actually order cabs that are completely autonomous. There's no, no person in the cab from what I know. I haven't used it. I haven't been to Arizona since I heard this, but I'm looking forward to doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so Waymo did that, and it's actually find it impressive. We'll see how it, it plays out, but it can actually have these autonomous caps now. Um, and different companies have different approaches. Like you know, we know that Tesla is, um, you know, Elon Musk, and, and uh, he has been vocal against like using heavy 3D sensors like lidar. Uh, Waymo has the safety first approach, even at the expense of like coming, having more sensors on it. So different companies have different approaches. And like I said, we have seen progress such as the Waymo release or Tesla features. But one summary I have is that again, the last mile has been proven to be more difficult than the optimistic anticipations like a few years ago. And many people had like predicted this like Rod Brooks and so on. Um, if you look at the predictions about like when autonomous driving would be here, let's say five years ago or three years ago, let's say we would hear by 2020 it would be uh, available, but it wasn't. Then 2018 and 19, they would push it like you know mm -hmm. a little bit more into the future, like five years. And you know in 2019 we we heard this question uh, multiple times answered by we don't know exactly when it will be here, which is representation of the fact that again the last mile has been like proven to be harder than the optimistic anticipations. But um, but I'm watching it actually carefully because it's an interesting area. There's a lot of investment in it. There's a lot of talent going in it. 
Um, so mm-hmm. if something wants to work, I believe autonomous driving will be one of the first examples of as the application of, say, vision plus AI, machine learning, and so on. And uh, so we'll see how it goes. Do you think the last mile problem applies specifically or only to autonomous driving? Or, is, or do we see this generally across uh, bringing research-based uh, innovations in the vision domain into real-world applications? No, I absolutely see it as uh, as the latter. It's not about autonomous driving anymore. Any, any real-world system has a lot of unanticipated issues that you probably won't even think of before you reach there. And um, many of these pipelines that we have right now, they have caveats. Let's say if you have a sensor that it, it works fine, it might continue to work fine during summer, but during winter, when it is snows, how, how do you know um, how it's going to react? Or like, let's say something like mm-hmm. autonomous driving or even like, say, indoors navigation. If you have a robot at home that like navigates safely from one point to another, let's say when that happens for household robotics. I'm pretty sure that you'd be surprised by um, by the way the system works when you take it to a different country, when the houses look different, or things that are, that are okay here, they're not okay there, and, and so on and so forth. So no, I definitely believe that any kind of real-world like adoption of, of this research that we are doing, especially in terms of machine learning, where there is a factor of uninterpretability as of now, um, the last mile will be proven proven harder. So let's shift gears from looking backwards into 2019 to looking forwards to the future. Uh, maybe give us your top predictions for computer vision for uh, 2020 or, or beyond. I've been challenging the, the folks that I've been doing our AI Rewind series this year since we're at the end of a decade to mm-hmm. project uh, a decade to the future. And no one takes me up on I that. I want to. <laughs> you know, the problem with making predictions is that there's a pretty good chance that um, for turning out to be wrong, like if, if a decade ago you of asked course. anybody about deep learning, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the chance of that being the prediction um, would be, uh-huh. even though it just, like it's in 2010, it just happened two years after that in, in, in computer vision. But yeah. I don't think, I'm not sure if anybody saw that coming, but maybe <laughs> some people say they saw it coming, but they were probably a very, very small percentage. But um, I, th- I think, you know, I can extrapolate a little bit, at least <laughs> uh, if I don't even uh, make, you know, um, too controversial, like, predictions. One thing that I, um, in terms of since we just finished the commercial discussion, I think at least I can say that from the commercial development perspective, I'll, I'll continue to watch autonomous driving progress. I really view that as a good mm-hmm. proxy for progress in a well-focused and well-invested area. So lack of talent, lack of data, lack of money is not really an excuse. So it, we are really down to solving the problem, the physical problem over there. And and mm, mm-hmm. and one of the other reasons that I particularly watch autonomous driving uh, progress is that perception-wise, ironically, autonomous driving to some extent is is a simplified case compared to the general perception case. There are there are complications, but this, the reason it's simplified compared to general perception is that like you know, in autonomous driving, there are like lane markers and there are signs and there's some code of conduct and there's a lot of data. Um, so the lane markers are 
you know, designed to tell you where you are. Whereas like when you're just walking in, in the woods, there is no lane marker. So it's the same navigation problem, mm-hmm. but you have to, it's a lost kind of a lot less information. There's a lot less sort of design ahead of time that's gone into making the problem perceptually simpler. So if, if we can solve, let's say, a lane detector for autonomous driving, a big problem is solved. Like for a general, say, navigation problem in un, a structured setting, there's no lane to detect. So you have to really do something more than that. So in some senses, in some senses, autonomous driving's perception is simplified. So I'm hoping to first see the simplified problem solved before we even like dream of solving the more uh, complex and unstructured problems. But of course, there's like like other big issues over there. Like there's safety risk, the speed of autonomous driving is high. That basically means you have very limited amount of time for making decisions. You have to make make decisions like way ahead of time compared to the normal setting when, when the speed is like uh, low and then sensitivity is high because there's like a risk of fatal accidents and varying conditions. Cars go everywhere and like during the night, during the day during the snow, foggy, and so on and so forth. And sensors get constantly interfered by sun and whatnot, and you're capped by the price. Um, so there is like, that's not to basically play down to complications, but at least, let's say, purely focusing on the detection aspect, there are some things in autonomous driving that are simplified. So I continue as a vision researcher to watch autonomous driving progress and to see where that goes and when it is that we are going to finally seal it and say that we safely have autonomous driving system and uh, so that's a good proxy for me that I watch. Another aspect that I think it's outside this niche, uh, like more specific applications like autonomous driving. If we like there, yeah, there are like other applications that we, we could watch. There is actually um, a, a lot of focus on like a startups on robotics that of course they need to solve vision too. Some of them are focused on warehouses. Some of them are focused on um, indoor spaces, uh, but if you want to think about like more like general settings about vision, commercially speaking, I look forward to more like democratization of, of vision pipelines. So there are APIs right now. Uh, so it's a very democratic way of, of using vision. Like if you're somebody that has no expertise in vision, um, you can actually use Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud to do certain tasks like face detection or some object detection, but compared to general uh, what vision can do, that's a very small part of the potential. So um, another good proxy for progress is that how much these democratic tools um, of vision, how far they go, mm-hmm. uh, how much we go beyond like face detection and, and so on. And like I said, there's a good reason that these APIs have these now because they are the things that work good. And many other things that we have, they just don't work good enough to be at the API level. And that's why I'm saying, like, the more I see brought to the API level that works reliably and sufficiently well, that's a good progress, um, proxy for our progress that we can see. And examples are, like, 3D again. Um, there's no good API, at least from what I know, that would recover the underlying 3D structure from, um, from given images uh, for you. Um, there's like networks. Are you predicting that, that for 2020? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Let's uh, I, like optimistically. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know whether we are going to get to the API level. Probably not. 
But mm-hmm. I think we're the progress in the field points to the direction that people will start like thinking about bringing that to the API level. Hopefully, based on the progress they'll make in in uh, in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we'll. I'm, I'm also observing these uh, and looking forward to more like democratiz- democratization of the tools that we have in Vision because that's really when, as Vision researchers, we will let the product of our work to be used by people that are not Vision researchers. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. that's I think so, from the um, from the commercial perspective. Um, from the technical perspective, I think actually the trends that I anticipate would be more or less an extrapolations of the trends that we we discussed. I do believe that Vision Plus Robotics will continue to go forward as strong. Um, the way it will change is that we will. Uh, we will actually start working on more specific, uh, sorry, more general problems. Like right now, let's say in this example of uh, like Habitat Challenge and Gibson to discuss, things were primarily about navigation. And even with the navigation, it was about the one case of navigation, like go to this particular coordinate. But uh, looking at the more general setting, uh, find objects for me or solve the tasks that, or like a sequential game, like find object A, and then go to an exit. Like an example, let's say it's uh, the rescue robot. You send a robot mm-hmm. to a building that is on fire. This robot has not been in this particular building before, but you task it with find the victim and go to the closest fire exit. So it's a really useful application, just that, but we are not there yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in terms of Vision Plus Robotics, I expect the 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 proportion of, of researchers interested in this topic to, to expand and the technical part, um, the problems to become uh, more challenging, more realistic, and hopefully work under more like more general setting, not, um, not limited settings that we have been focusing on so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I, multitask learning came up uh, in our discussions, and I think that's an area that uh, I hope to see progress in it. Um, generally, you know, there's very little things about vision that is single task. Like your job with an image doesn't end the moment you detect objects in it, or the moment you detect the depth of it, you, the, the moment you detect the vanishing points. For any practical use, for most practical uses, you usually need multiple of things uh, of such task at the same time. So the problem is like essentially multitask to be useful. Um, so being able to bring multitask learning to a, a more reasonable state, uh, where we can solve multiple problems efficiently and reliably and consistently is, is an important problem. We did see some progress in 2019, but we are far from reaching that level to the point that we can supply a multitask vision pipeline with one image. And in the output, it produces a breadth of different abstractions extracted in a way that that is done independently. Uh, sorry, that is done efficiently. Of course, you can have like under the hood, you can have like n different independent pipelines for n different tasks. That's inefficient because there's a lot of redundancy between them. So you don't want to do that. Um, being able to do that efficiently, do not sacrifice the accuracy over there. All these N outputs should have a reasonable quality. And something that I'm personally excited about these days, and hopefully 
um, soon we'll uh, we'll release the stuff on it is on consistency. So the output of a multitask system should be consistent. Uh, your objects and your 3D cannot be inconsistent with each other. So how we mm -hmm. actually learn, do the learning in a way that the the outcome is uh, is uh, has some guarantees for being consistent. And one thing that also I think we have overlooked for, for too long, especially again in the context of multitask learning, is uncertainty. For each of these outputs, uh, sure, we are providing some predictions, but you can't do much with a prediction, especially as a practitioner, if it's not associated with some confidence metric. Uh, this is a dog in an image, but with what confidence? If, it's, if you're 99% confident, and versus your 50% confident, your decision probably changes. If there's a tiger within like two meters of you with 99% confidence, I'm going to run. If it's 1% <laughs> confidence, probably I'm not going to run. I'm going to do something mm -hmm. else. So there's, there's a real, real value in, uh, in extracting uncertainty um, from the visual signal. Um, uh, surprisingly, that's not actually a big part of the computer vision uh, uh, research right now. And I think that's part of the part of the reason that's happening is that uh, the vision plus X uh, movement is recent. So the moment you want to provide vision uh, outcome towards some downstream goal, whether that's a roboticist or some and, and so on and so forth, you realize that they need a little bit more than what you are providing them. And one of the things that they, mm. they definitely need is uncertainty estimation. Um, so you bring this up in the mm -hmm. context of multitask is the idea that uh, the the consistency desire and the uncertainty uh, desire can be formulated as uh, additional tasks or objectives as part of your training? Right. The reason I brought it up in the context of multitask learning is that multitask learning itself provides an opportunity for a new way of quantifying uncertainty. But uncertainty is still useful, and it can be done in a single task setting too. And mm -hmm. in the machine learning community, there's actually work on it, more than vision community. Uh, that uh, systems that uh, supply a confidence score besides the prediction that they're making, even that's a single task. There's like research being done on that and so on, but it has been, again, proven harder than anticipated because neural networks uh, were found to be making confident mistakes. So because of various different uh, uh, things, that's most of them are actually theory. There are papers mm -hmm. in, um, in just past ICML that was probably more like a track that why this is happening. That's basically a question rather than something that you already know the answer to it. But we have made this observation that neural networks make confident mistakes. So that's a problem. So basically means that even if you have a measure of uncertainty, chances are um, uh, that might not be reliable because if you extract that uncertainty out of a single task system, there's no redundancy over there or there's no ensembling, that uncertainty estimation might not be very, very accurate too. So in multitask setting, there's a way to solve that because essentially under the hood, there are multiple uh, processing pipelines for different abstractions and the consistency across them is actually a good proxy for how accurate each of them are. And um, there has been research on it, and, and uh, hopefully, I think soon, maybe within a few weeks, um, we will also release new material on that. But from what I see, the meta point is that we definitely need to, to output uh, uncertainty estimates out of the visual processing pipelines that we do, and 
and more specifically on, on multitask learning and so on, what I see is that there, there is a, there's a good opportunity to solve that problem, at least within the uh, multitask learning framework. And we'll see how 2020 turns out. Awesome. Awesome. Any additional predictions for us? I think that's it. That's enough to embarrass myself in a year from now. So. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Autonomous driving in 2020. That's what you said, right? Well, <laughs> I didn't for the record, but um, I, I, I hope. Nice, nice. At the very least, uh, Amir in an autonomous vehicle cab in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's at least a thing there, and I'm looking forward to trying it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Amir, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us your, again, your take on 2019 and uh, predictions or anticipations for the, the year ahead. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.